everybody. Welcome to SACPA. My name is Christina Larkin, and I'm so pleased to be here moderating today uh, on the talk of, topic of ecological grief. So just a few housekeeping things to start. Um, a reminder to please um, silence or turn off your cell phones so that we can pay attention to our great presenters. Uh, a reminder that the talk and the Q&A are going to be recorded. Thank you to um, Shaw Spotlight for providing a video of the talk and then to SACPA for providing a podcast of both the talk and the um, Q&A session. A reminder to please place your $14 for lunch into the bowl or $2 for coffee. Um, if you're like me, who comes with the coffee and just gets like wildly over-caffeinated, enjoy that. Um, and have somebody please count uh, the bowl to make sure it's the correct amount before we come collect the bowls after the talk. A reminder, if you're new to SACPA, so the outline for today is that we have about 25 or 30 minutes for the presentation, and then lunch, and then a question period, and we'll be done at 1.30. So, um, we are here today to talk about um, ecological grief. Let me get all my papers out here now. So the question for SACPA today is ecological grief is not new, but it's on the rise, so how can we deal with it? Today we have Amy Spark and Jody Lavalan coming here, uh, sorry, jo Jody Lavinette, man, here from Calgary, joining us to speak about ecological grief. And I'm so pleased to have them here um, who came all the way from Calgary, and this is uh, just their first session for the day. We also have a workshop this evening. There are still some spaces available. If you'd like to register, um, find us at uh, Environment Lethbridge. So Amy Spark is an environmental scientist, an advocate focused on the intersection between ecological and mental health. Her research in the Ghost River Valley highlighted patterns of ecological grief, the emotional experience after the loss of cherished natural spaces. She loves her work as a sustainability coordinator at Bow Valley College, where she collaborates on environmental solutions that also aid in social cohesion and well-being. She's an amateur urban homesteader, budding writer, and lover of all things X-Files. Usually find her happily exploring Calgary by bike or digging into a good book. Jody is a lover of life, beauty, art, stimulating conversation, and wilderness spaces. With a formal education in sacred literature, leadership, and spiritual direction, Jody became interested in the intersections between social and environmental justice, spirituality, and the human psyche. She lived and worked in an intentional uh, retreat community for four years where she was immersed in the practices of hospitality, active listening, and contemplative living. She's a spiritual director, retreats facilitator, and an avid reader. Um, as both a friend and co-organizer co with both of these lovely people, um, I am so glad that you're all here to witness their brilliance and learn from um, them and from each other, um, and hopefully from yourselves as we go through this process. So thank you all so much for joining us at SACPA. Welcome, Jody and Amy. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Amy, and this is Jody. Um, it is really hard to follow up when someone calls you brilliant, because I feel like if you fall anything short, um, it's, it's hard, to, uh, hard to meet, but um, I just want to say a sincere thank you on behalf of Jody and myself. We're so excited to be here and be able to talk about this um, topic that we're so passionate about. So um, if I'm speaking too quickly, um, please just show of hands. I'll try to slow down, but I'm just so excited today. Um, so um, I, give me a, a raise of hands if you are at all concerned about the state of the world and it keeps you up at night. <laughs> Um, yeah, 
I would expect a few hands, especially if you voluntarily show up to come to a session about ecological grief. I think we can all relate to that feeling of watching the news at night or hearing these news stories and not necessarily knowing how to process these emotions. So um, if you're here for kind of that silver bullet, here's how you do it. I'm sorry, I don't have that answer for you, but we have a few suggestions um, and a few pieces of research that kind of show how we can begin to understand what these emotional experiences are like. Um, and also, yeah, we're both from, or I'm from Calgary, Jody's from Edmonton, so she's driven even farther, but we're just so, so excited to um, have the chance to get to know some people from Lethbridge, so let's dive in. So the term um, and experience of eco-grief, I would say, has been on the rise lately. So I think the title is interesting because I would say as a scientist, we can't say that ecological grief is on the rise, or at least I can't. That's not what my research focused on. But I think just taking a glance at the news recently, I would say this language is getting a lot more familiar for people. So these are just four, um, four of many that I could have chosen. But this idea of climate grief, environmental grief, eco-anxiety, these are all terms that describe um, the emotional response to what's going on on our planet and in the social realm as well because um, our social systems, political systems, and our environmental systems are all interrelated. So I would say psychologists are noticing an increase in the amount of um, people that are starting to name this and say, I can't fall asleep at night because I have anxiety about what's going on in our world. So it's not just the environmental sector that's noticing this, it's in a lot of sectors as well. Um, and fertility uh, around the world is decreasing. People are having less children. And this is not necessarily a new story, but I would say the story about why some people are not having children is more and more about the state of the world. There's a lot of people that are writing blogs that say, I'm scared to become a parent because I don't know what the world is gonna look like in 70 or 80 years. Um, and as a young woman, I would say this is something I also think about at night. If I'm thinking about having children, what is that world gonna look like for my kids? And I noticed this um, other article uh, a few months ago about mental health of farmers. And I looked and there's nothing in there that says eco-grief. But I would say this idea of um, mental distress and a decrease in mental health around climate, right? It's around crops. Um, it's really hard to plan when you don't know what the climate is going to look like and you don't know when to harvest because the weather is changing all the time. So I would say this conversation is starting in Alberta. We're just not using eco-grief yet. Um, and we'll get back to that idea of legitimizing this language at the end. Um, but thinking about our, um, our society here in Canada, Canada has been called a death-denying society by sociologists because we're very uncomfortable about talking about loss and we're not very good at talking about loss and what that means to us. Um, have you ever been in an experience where um, someone has just said, I've just lost my parent or I've lost someone and you just didn't know what to say? Anyone been in that experience? Or you've lost someone yourself and you just never get the right response back because people just sort of, they don't want to talk about it. Um, my aunt and uncle lost two sons in two separate accidents. And they always say, we want to talk about Sean and Patrick. We don't want to, we don't want you to think that we haven't forgotten about them because we think about them every day. So you asking about them is not <laughs> reminding me that I've lost a son. So. Um, but just to sort of point out that even as other forms of grief, we're not necessarily good at talking about it in the public space. 
or at work, um, and there's other forms of loss that we don't feel comfortable talking about. Um, like thinking about, would you ever take a bereavement day at work because you lost your dog? Probably not. Some people would, which I admire. Um, but there are other forms of grief that have been documented, like loss of a pet, loss of a job, loss of a relationship. These are other forms of grief that are considered disenfranchised loss. So you're just not sort of allowed to speak about them in public. So what I'm going to focus on mostly today is a case study in the Ghost River Valley, which is northwest of um, Calgary. And uh, as I say, as, as a social scientist, when we talk about case studies, the idea is that it is a case study. So it's not, by design, it's not replicable, replicable right? You can't repeat this because it's a series of stories. Um, but where um, the scientific rigor comes from is if you have many case studies that tell a similar story, then you can sort of point to and say, okay, these patterns do exist. So keep that in mind is that when I go through these, um, the patterns that emerge through this case study, um, they might not apply to your experience, but hopefully they help us begin to develop some language. So um, in the Ghost River Valley, there's been a lot of changes over the past few years, um, probably similar to some changes that are happening around Lethbridge as well. Um, just sort of illegal camping, lots of off-highway vehicle use, um, uh, a flood in 2013, which caused a lot of destruction, as well as kind of the most tangible event that people could point to was clear-cut logging. So um, from 2016 to 20, oh, that's wrong. It's two years. Yeah, sorry, thanks. Yeah, so late 2015 to 2017, there was a two-year um, clear-cut logging project. And what was interesting about this case study is I did my field work in the spring between those two cut seasons. So some logging had happened and some was yet to come. So I think that actually influenced some of the results as well. So my research question was actually fairly simple is, is ecological grief a true form of grieving? So I had term, heard that term eco-grief before and I was thinking, is that... Like, is eco-grief a form of grieving? Like, does it follow similar patterns as the loss of a person? Or is it a completely different experience altogether? And like a lot of research, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, again, nothing clear-cut. But I wanted to point out why I use that term grief, because there are a lot of patterns that repeated between kind of that traditional form of grief and eco-grief. Uh, and just to say that no form of grief is traditional or clear-cut. Every form of grief is unique in some way. Um, even individually, you might not grieve two people the same way, right? It's not like you have a grief radar in your body that says, when someone passes away, this is how I'm going to respond. It changes over time, and it changes between people, and it changes between events. So what I'm kind of um, referring to is um, generalizations of what grief might look like. So the first one, pointed that out, is all forms of grief are unique. So what was interesting is the 12 people that I interviewed who live and work in the Ghost Valley is they all had a different experience or a different way of talking about that grief. As well, and sorry, I'll just run through this because I want to get to the more meat of the presentation. Uh, the second one was an actual physical or physiological response to that loss. So I think we often think that grief is just in your head when grief, like depression, has a lot of physical symptoms and you can kind of inhabit that in your body as well. So loss of sleep, um, nausea, um, anxiety, which is a physical reaction, um, those were all kind of noticed by members of the valley. 
um, rites of passage and lament and bereavement groups. So um, being able to somehow process, name, and speak about your grief um, was helpful for a lot of people in the valley. Um, it was interesting as like a, a human geographer who were asking people about their grief, a lot of people said, actually just by talking to you, it's helped me process it a little bit. So um, that's where kind of the beauty of um, the field of emotional geography comes from is that by very virtue of researching that, you're actually changing the system in which you're working. So as long as a, as a researcher, you keep that in mind and you report on it, understand that as research goes on, you're influencing the system. The biggest one I want to talk about is this idea of blame or guilt. So often in grief, there's kind of this um, uh, blame or guilt that seems irrational, right? Like if only I'd gotten to the hospital faster, maybe that's a simple one, but I wish I'd spent more time with that person when they were alive. Um, there's all forms of blame or guilt that we either put on ourselves or on other people in a system if you're experiencing grief. So you can imagine in a system where there's clear-cut logging or perhaps policies that people don't agree with, do you think there was some sort of blame or guilt going on? <laughs> perhaps towards government, <laughs> maybe? Um, so definitely in this, in this case study, there was a lot of guilt, shame, blame um, being kind of tossed around. But what was interesting is that guilt, shame, and blame starts to change the longer that someone's been experiencing eco-grief, um, particularly around um, I'm angry at the logging company for logging. And then you realize, well, who gave the logging company the permission to log in that area? It was the government. So then you can kind of put that blame back on the government. Well, was it the government of today or was it the government of seven years ago? Well, it was actually the government of seven years ago. Well, who votes in that government? It's all of us. And so it, the blame and shame kind of got more and more esoteric and more and more public. So in a way, it kind of got um, spread around to all of us, which I thought was interesting. Shifts in worldview. Um, so um, I won't spend much time on this, but grief can often change the way that you see the world. So does eco-grief. And then timelines get muddled. So um, Dr. Kubler, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is the one that developed that five-stage framework of loss, um, she actually developed that when out of working with terminally ill patients. So that five-stage framework was developed for people that were grappling with their own death and their own loss, and then it was later applied to the loss of another person. So I think that's interesting to note, is that we often point to that five-stage framework of um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, but that's a very small piece of what grief actually looks like to people. But in grief, often, you can experience a loss from 20 years ago, like again, when you experience another loss. So kind of in your brain, griefs can overlap and the timelines get muddled. Same thing with eco-grief. Uh, and then the last one, as I mentioned, Dr. Kubler-Ross worked with terminally ill patients. And what she found is every single patient that she worked with, no matter that they had a um, pretty dire prognosis, a lot of people held on to some hope. And that hope is often, well, my death is going to help other people. And it was the same with the residents of the Ghost Valley, that perhaps this logging event will help us to rethink what forestry can look like in Alberta. So the sense of action, agency, and hope was pretty prevalent. So that was the first part of the research, was just asking that question of, does eco-grief exist as a form of grief? Like when we lose a landscape or a landscape is changing, does it feel like grief? So, 
what I wanted to share today was more about how is it unique? How is eco-grief different than other forms of loss? And I think by understanding how it's different, we can work towards understanding how do we cope with all of these changes. So there's kind of four patterns that I noticed. The first one is this idea, and this is kind of old language that I used, I've started to use different language, but I called it dull versus sharp grief. So when I asked you to raise your hands at the beginning, I asked you, are you overwhelmed by the changes that are going on in the world? And a lot of people raised their hands. And I think that's because it's just the sheer accumulation of the amount of media that we consume that is fairly negative, right? Think about climate change, biodiversity loss, um, ocean acidification, ocean, ocean plastic pollution. Like, and I work in the environmental sector, so I get those emails several times a day. Um, and it, you kind of become numb to it, or you have to, in order to just continue that work. So one um, participant called this low-intensity warfare, is that it's still a stressful situation, but there's nothing that you can point to that says, that's why I'm grieving, which is different in the Ghost Valley, which is people are saying, that clear-cut logging is what's causing my grief. So I think it just depends on, is that easier or harder, that accumulation or that sharp pain? Um, now I would use the term eco-anxiety to kind of describe that dull grief, is that it's like that consistent worry and anxiety around what's happening. The second pattern, um, which requires a little bit of explanation, is this idea of you're kind of grieving something that exists and doesn't exist at the same time. So I mentioned during this case study, they were exactly halfway through a clear-cut logging. And so people were grieving what had already been lost and grieving in advance of what was going to be lost. So um, when I lost my grandmother in 2012, um, she had died of Alzheimer's after about 11 or 12 year battle with that disease. And so when she actually died, I felt really guilty, again, going back to guilt, shame, and blame, because I didn't grieve her. I felt like, I'm so numb, why don't I grieve? Didn't I love my Nana, what's wrong with me? And then I found this term of anticipatory grief and I realized I did grieve her, but five years before she physically passed away because she was no longer the same person. So that helped me sort of say, I'm not a bad person. <laughs> I love my family, um, but I'd grieved her already. So what's unique about eco-grief is you're doing both at the same time, in a sense. You're trying to grapple with what's happened and then prepare for what's going to happen as well which is hard to do with a person, right? It's hard to grieve them and grieve them in anticipation at the same time. Does that make sense? So, oops. Um, so this links up with kind of the third pattern, which is there's shades of loss, right? So in an ecosystem, it's not like an ecosystem is there and then gone. We have, when someone dies, most of the time, there's a very discreet, alive, dead, category and I think in some ways that can be the most hard to grapple with because that person that's been there your whole life is just gone. But in eco-grief it doesn't happen that way. An ecosystem changes usually quite slowly and um, Tom Van Doren who's an environmental humanities um, writer and professor in Australia he wrote a fantastic book called Flightways and he really talks about the kind of the loss of a, a species of bird and he says is is extinction when the last bird dies or is it when that way of life of that bird is gone? So there's not enough um, members of that species to talk to each other or to migrate together. Like when does the actual death happen? And I think that's a good way to describe that it's a shade, right? <laughs> like it doesn't happen overnight usually. Um, 
clear-cut maybe is kind of the exception with environmental change or a flood is that it does tend to happen overnight. But a lot of what we're talking about is ecosystems change relatively slowly. Something else that I think is interesting about this, sorry, Jody, <laughs> um, I just want to point out that um, several human geographers have made the case that memory is spatially situated, which is just fancy talk for you tend to remember things really well when you're in the same space. And um, when that space changes, um, your memory gets distorted in a way. Because if you think about it, when um, you have really strong memories when you go back to maybe your childhood home. You think, oh yeah, I used to do that. I used to do my homework at that table. That's a memory that was in there, but you maybe hadn't thought about it for years. Um, and on the flip side, it's hard to conjure a memory without thinking about the space in which it happened. Right? It's memory happens against a backdrop. And so when you change that backdrop, it actually influences the memories. Um, and a lot of research has shown that every time you remember something, the memory actually changes. And so. Um, just to keep that in mind that what people are trying to describe is my memories are changing because the environment in which I'm in seems to be changing. So getting to the hopeful part <laughs> of the presentation, I, we did say how do you deal with it. So um, due to that shades of loss, what's interesting about eco-grief is there's still environment, there's still natural spaces out there. And so what often people use to help heal eco-grief is to get out in nature, right? to spend time in spaces that they love, which you can't do with the death of a person. So physiologically, when someone you care about dies, um, something called um, psychobioregulation changes. So what's actually happening when you lose a person is the hormones um, that help you regulate your emotions have changed because kind of the stimulus, that interaction with that person is gone. So not only are you grieving the person, it's actually much harder to grieve them because their support is gone. It's kind of a catch-22. Does that make sense? With nature, that doesn't happen because you can go out to other forms of nature and appreciate it and actually start that healing process. So because eco-grief isn't necessarily, or the death of an ecosystem, let's say, isn't black and white, that means the healing process isn't maybe quite as stark because there are still natural spaces out there that can provide solace. Right. Sorry, that was a very quick run through. <laughs> You're basically getting my thesis in 20 minutes. So <laughs> um, I just found this on Google. I should have actually um, sourced it, sorry. Um, but I just thought it was so funny that when we think about grief, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of you don't really understand what I'm going through. And I think that's fair because grief is so complicated. You're often grieving someone that you've known for years. So. Um, what I want to kind of talk about is how do we talk about grief in the context of Alberta? And thinking about, um, and I've written about this since my thesis, and I'm still working through what it means, but what I found is that eco-grief is often seen as a political statement. It's sort of, it's a statement against certain things, right? So if you, if you grieve a logging event, you must be against logging, or you must be against development, or you live in a wooden house, <laughs> how dare you grieve that forest? And a lot of the participants that I spoke with, or a lot of the residents, work in oil and gas. And they were finding it really hard to sort of, to even allow themselves to grieve because they're saying, well, inadvertently, maybe my actions are causing this to someone else's community. So I don't even feel like I, um, I'm allowed to grieve because people will jump down my throat and say, perhaps you're doing that to someone else. And what I 
my real thing is we need to get on that, beyond that idea of um, naming other people's hypocrisy because we're all hypocrites, we're all Albertans, we have the highest per capita carbon footprint in the world and that doesn't mean that we don't have the right to grieve these changes because I think what we do when we point our fingers and say, um, how dare you have an emotional reaction to this is we actually take away the humanity of that person and we take away um, how complex our systems right are. Like we have allegiances in different roles and um, there's a lot of people that work in oil and gas that, are, that care about these things and there's a lot of people that don't work in oil and gas that don't care about these things. So um, I think, yeah, just to remember that we're all very complex and the more that we can actually provide compassion and empathy towards other people that are naming I, a naming a grief, um, it kind of takes the conversation to the next level and we don't get caught in these vicious cycles of um, kind of pointing the finger at other people. Not to say that positive change doesn't need to happen and not to say that we can't talk about change, but that when we're talking about an emotional response, um, I think it does us very little good to negate um, someone's emotional response. So I'm sure that will come up in the question period. <laughs> There's probably some questions about that but I wanted to name it. We're in a very particular area of the world to have these types of conversations of grief. Um, as we wrap up here, I just wanted to um, kind of go back to some terms. Um, and this is something Jody and I talk about is um, the language, the more language you have, kind of the more power you have to describe your experience. So um, I would say I'm not experiencing eco-grief right now. I think I would be experiencing eco-anxiety. So I have I'm worrying about the state of the world, and I'm worrying that I'm not working hard enough or fast enough, or perhaps positive change isn't happening fast enough, biodiversity is happening too fast. It's just, it's an anxiety, and it's a physical anxiety in the stomach. Whereas grief is a much more specific response to a loss, right? Um, and again, this is language that you can use to describe your own experience. I'm not a psychologist, I can't tell you this is what you're experiencing, but perhaps some language to help. Um, eco-despair, which I've heard a few times from people, how I think about eco-despair is, it's the belief that positive change is no longer possible, right? And so in order to get into that space of, I don't believe the world is going to get any better, it's a numbing. You have to get into that numbing space and dissociate or else um, it's really hard to get out of that space. Um, so to sort of use those three terms interchangeably, um, I think kind of reduces what the difference actually is between them. And the last thing I wanted to mention is just through our kind of our experience, what is the best way to start to deal with this? And I think a lot more research could be done in this realm, and this is what I'm excited to um, kind of hopefully keep working towards, is how do we, okay, we've got a language to describe this, we kind of understand what eco-grief looks like, but how do we deal with it? So the biggest thing I would say is to get involved and stay involved but to avoid negative attention bias. So what I mean by that is don't just watch the news <laughs> um, because news outlets are designed to um, focus on negative news, right? And so check out what a lot of great organizations across Alberta are doing. There's lots of positive change happening. And again, that doesn't mean that we just ignore <laughs> um, things that we're passionate about, um, but this idea of um, we need to surround ourselves <clears throat> surround ourselves with more positive stories. And self-efficacy, so this belief that what you're doing makes a difference and this belief that you, um, you can do change, that you have a play in this, 
is the, um, determined to be the most positive, sorry, if self-efficacy, a belief that you can make change, is what causes people to change, right? So long-term pro-environmental behavior, um, so that would be maybe biking instead of driving twice a week, um, is inspired by self-efficacy, the belief that you can do it and that it makes a difference. And so the more that you get involved, the higher self-efficacy, so it's a virtuous circle. As I said, get outside, spend some time with nature, um, because it can help provide that solace. And connecting with others. So connecting with other people, just sharing your story and say, yeah, I, um, they cut down a tree in my backyard and I'm missing it. Like being able to kind of describe your experience I think is helpful. And then finding the language that feels right for you. Maybe you hate the term eco-grief. Maybe you don't think that you're experiencing it. But even just being able to describe your emotional response is helpful. A little bit of a plug here. So Jody and I... Um, started this initiative, Refugia Retreats, and we've written um, three blog posts about eco-grief, both kind of the scientific side as well as the personal side, as well as a bunch of resources. So if you want to learn more, please check out our blog. And then um, Christina will be handing out a resource page um, over lunch, and so we've tried to compile as many other frameworks um, and ways of coping with this loss into a page that you can take with you. Um, and hopefully begin to kind of work through if this is something that you're passionate about. Um, the last note before I pass it off to Jody to close is, um, to me, equal grief is a message of hope because you only grieve what you love. And to say that you're grieving something or you're feeling anxious about the state of the world just goes to show how much we care for it. So um, I always try and link back with that idea of Grief, um, or as Joanna Macy says, the other side of our pain for the world is our love for the world. And um, a minister pointed this out to me. He said, grief is actually a very human emotion. It's a very healthy experience to work through in a loss. What, um, what often happens is if you suppress that grief and actually don't take the time to work through it, that's where a lot of um, negative health impacts come out 10, 20 years down the road. So by being able to say, I'm grieving, and then understand that there's ways that you can work through grief, um, I think is a really positive um, message that grief is healthy. It's not easy, it's difficult, but it doesn't mean it's actually a good experience to go through. All right, do you wanna close? Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to tell just a little bit of my story of living in the Ghost Valley. Um, I was actually one of the participants that Amy interviewed when she was doing her research, but I know we don't really have time for that, so if you are interested, at some point I can chat with you about what my experience has been like. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to close with just a quote from Kathleen Dean Moore, who is a philosopher and a writer, and she says, each of us has the power to make our life into a work of art that expresses our deepest values. Don't ask, will my acts save the world? Maybe they won't, but ask, are my actions consistent with what I most deeply believe is right and good? This is our calling, the calling for me and you and everybody else in the room, to do what is right, even if it does no good, to celebrate and care for the world, even if it's a fate that breaks our hearts. And um, a quote that I often refer back to is that the other side of our pain for the world is our love for the world, and that those two things are intimately connected. And so when we're able to actually experience our eco-grief and talk about it, we also reconnect to our love. So thank you for having us today.